Hi everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're up to episode 30. I love a nice round number. It sounds like we've done so many. I'm Liam. I'm Leanne. And yes, that's right. Unfortunately, Lisa is missing in action again this week. She's um... originally nearly said I'm Lisa then. (laughs) It's like it's a Pavlovian response (laughs) now. about to say that. So, lucky I remembered my own name at that point. And playing the part of Lisa Bryan tonight is understudy Leanne Gibbs. But uh, So yes, Lisa's unfortunately um, uh, working hard somewhere else, I just couldn't make it tonight, but uh, we she should be back as usual next week. But um, as well, talk about the end of our news list, we've, uh, as we did last episode, episode 28, we've uh, replaced her um, quite uh, ruthlessly with a special guest, which I'm excited to introduce a bit later. But we will uh, crack on with the news list this week. So uh, I think, Leanne, do you want to bring us this first one? This is about some fascinating research about stay-at-home dads versus stay-at-home mums. Uh, yes, this is about stay-at-home dads. And I think this one caught my eye because um, I have been sort of around and about in various suburbs and have noticed that um, there's a lot more dads out with their very young children uh, through the working week. And it's it's definitely caught my eye. But then I saw this and it said that, in actual fact, we don't have as many um, dads who are staying home with uh, young children. It has definitely increased, but it certainly um, isn't isn't at the levels that I think everybody would like to see. And it really comes back to the issues around uh, policy, social policy, as opposed to whether dads want to stay at home. Um, because the, obviously there's, you know, there is a growing trend in fathers being um, perhaps at home uh, where, they're, where their partners are working full-time, part-time, or they're sharing their care or they're sharing whatever. But it's actually the policy that needs to support this. So greater flexibility and uh, also, uh, you know, a much better attitude in the workplace towards um, fathers having part-time roles and being able to spend time with their young children. Absolutely. There's some fascinating data in the article which we're willing to, and we won't necessarily get into hugely here, but um, the big thing that I sort of saw so is that... um, the the bit the big the decision for a stay at home dad to stay at home um, is usually an economic decision. So it says driven by unemployment or um, uh, you know or inability to find work, and isn't a lifestyle choice to spend more time on parenting. So I think you're absolutely right. It's still sort of playing into that you know those societal attitudes we need to we need to change about who should be who should be where who should be staying at home and who should be out in the workforce. Yeah, and it is, and and it is an economic decision exactly. And I don't think even the you know any sort of sentiment can change the fact that women are earning a much smaller percentage um, than than men are. Well, not much smaller, but a reduced percentage, even even in similar jobs. Um, and so it is very – it's difficult to make those decisions where people are looking for security, looking to, you know, have, sort of make sure that they have their future all mapped out and even afford their early childhood education for their children. Wow, wouldn't that make a difference? <laughs> we should look at some national reforms to sort that out. Actually, no, let's not do that. 
No. When we saw what no. happened last time. Gosh, no. Let's not do that. <laughs> now, next cab off the rank, I'm going to call the, the, the this is Lisa Bryant uh, sort of in spirit insisting we do this. And actually, we may as well just um, dob her in straight away. She's she's already texted us both during the record of this episode saying, make sure you cover this. She's meant to be too busy to be recording tonight, but she's already hassling us to make sure we include this. Um, this is some information that's come from the Finn Review about G8 education. Now, I'm going to preface all of this by saying, A, I had to phone a friend to get him to explain it to me. So people who remember from, I think it's episode 14, our friend Carl... Uh, Hessian, who uh, works in Melbourne and is insanely good at understanding and explaining this stuff. So I will not be able to explain it either as well as he or Lisa would in this. And Leanne, you may have to leap in with a life raft and rock, uh, rescue me sometimes because Lisa... Uh, will... Look, the only thing I can bring is a paddle, but I don't, <sighs> think, that, uh, I don't think I can provide... A, if, there's a, if there's a big hole in the boat, Liam, I don't think I'm the one for you. We will, we will give it a go. But for, that, for on the news list last week, we talked about a sudden... Um, actually, I think it might have been the week before. I think it was the other week Lisa was away. She's going to be so cranky she's missed the two episodes where there's big... <laughs> G8 news, but um, there was a very sudden drop in the share price for G8 um, that was a bit difficult for them to explain, and it seemed to be a combination of, you know, too many uh, centres opening and and um, uh, occupancy slumping. Um, there's been a sort of follow up to that, which is um, a so there's a, an overseas uh, investment company based in Singapore had planned to basically buy a lot of shares from G8 and, and inject a fair bit of money into them. Uh, they paid the first uh, round of that payment, but have at the very last minute not paid the second round, um, which seems, uh, and as sort of Carl has, has explained to me in the simplest possible terms, which is the only way I can understand it, it's, um, you know, someone's agreed to, to said they want to buy something, they've agreed to buy something, they make one payment, and then they go, mm, I don't know, maybe it's not worth what it was, because I think they're looking now at the, the, the slumping of the G8 uh, share price and going, well, I don't know if we want to give them so much money, but that will inevitably be um, not fantastic news to G8. And um, yes, it gets very complicated in saying it's worth pulling out because it's worth G8. It's now 450 centres nationally. So uh, we, I think we have to keep an eye on what's happening with them because if there were significant issues with that company, there we, the, the Australian early childhood sector would be in a world of pain. Does that is that is that a decent summary, Leanne? Is oh, look, I, think, I think that's an excellent summary, and I think that you know if we just kind of hark back again to the the ABC debacle, then people might uh, link to that and 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 grasp exactly what you're saying about if if it goes down, then it's it's a similar story. Absolutely. Um, so we will continue to monitor developments on that, and hopefully Lisa will be back to 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 go through that next time because i'm looking forward to her being back next week and telling me everything i got wrong with that summary so sorry i I think that it's always good to leave a space for others in this debate (laughs) absolutely we did our best everyone don't don't harass us too much um and then oh this was a really fantastic article you i didn't read until you put it in the news list leanne this was um from the sydney morning herald from their economics writer did you want to talk about this one i love seeing hard-nosed economics people in the media getting on board with early childhood did, did i put that one in i thought you put that one in did i put that one in oh god i think yeah, i may have actually I'm hang on pretty sure that you put that one in my one was the the stay-at-home dads You're... i did put one in for from the afr which was actually in this in the g8 it fitted in with the g8 ah. club 
Did you want to talk um, about that one at all? Or? Yeah, how about I just do that one and, and well, you can quickly <laughs> catch up on that. Read the article that I suggested. Yes, <laughs> I will do that. professional tonight, aren't we? <laughs> um, well, this, this actually was for one about the type of sales that happen around um, early childhood services. And I guess the G8 link here was that a couple of properties were sold um, at auction and that they had a, a record low yield on uh, the the um, auction, which was which is interesting because what they're saying is that the yield is only three point six percent. And I I remember at one stage we were saying to people only get involved in childcare um, if there's if there's a really good you know if there's a really good outcome and in actual fact you'd be better to get a rental property. And do you know what? I think people have taken that advice here because what they've done is they've bought these um, childcare centres that obviously have extremely long leases on them um, and they're, they're leased by G8. So they've got a lovely 10-year lease um, with excellent rental returns. I guess my worry in looking at that is how how is this rent going to be paid over time? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was all in the same the same uh, article where they were talking about the sale of coffee shops, I think, and and <laughs> ice cream parlors. Oh and I thought, God. yeah, I just thought oh, something's wrong with this picture. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I find that stuff uh, fascinating, as fascinating as I find it difficult to understand. But it, it it does. I always just come back to I'm just amazed that early childhood is lumped in with the same. Yeah, with that with that sort of stuff that it. Because of the market-based model, it's it's looked at in those terms, which is which just can't be good for children. At the end it of the can't day. be, but I, I always try and sort of psychologically set it set my mind to think it's just about property. That's just about property. It's, <laughs> it's not actually about the junk. Exactly, it's that's right. That's a good, that's, that's a good that? way to think of it, the bricks and mortar. I have now reminded myself of this article that I read, loved and then suggested and then forgot in the space of about two hours. So um, this is an article by Ross Gittins, who's the economics editor for the Sydney Morning Herald. And it's, um, it's fantastic. And it refers to a report by our favourite researchers, the Mitchell Institute, which have said um, that 26% of students are failing to finish school or an equivalent sort of vocational stuff, which is pretty staggering. And he sort of refers to this as a big failure of the school system um, and talks about that for a while. But then he goes back and says, you know, a, a key solution to this issue has to be, you know, properly funding early childhood education and ensure that um, uh, people, you know, children can actually access, um, you know, early childhood learning. And critically, he says, actually, that's the first step. And then he also says um, it's an issue he's going to leave for his own column. So I'll be I'll be making sure he follows yeah, up on we, that. Yeah, we must be sort of pinging him and, and letting him Ross, know that that's, a, that's where is excellent. It? Yes. <laughs> have, you, have you written that yet? I haven't yet. I'm going to tweet him as soon as I'm done here. But um, that's – I. I don't think we should underestimate in the sector, particularly given the the how poorly we sort of performed in advocacy with the Jobs for Families legislation. You know, Ross Gittins is not some crazy lefty um, social justice warrior. He's a pretty hard nosed economics, um, you know. Journo. Oh, I think he's I think he's that, but he's also that as well. <laughs> I think he's the, I think he's two things. <laughs> well, people can be two things, Liam. But I don't, <laughs> I don't. Well, I don't think he would be the the the, the typical lefty we would assume. But he's um, but the the economic, you know, the arguments for early childhood are just—it's faintly ridiculous now that people can't just get on board with this. But the more the more people we have in these sort of you know senior cultural positions um, banging on about this, the happier I am. So we'll include a link to that mm. article. 
And I think that's Great it. One. Absolutely. Well, that, so that's it for the news, li- news list. We will um, cover some uh, some more media articles next week. But we are uh, the topic for tonight. We we've been thinking for a little while. So we did an episode on the changes to the national quality framework a few episodes back, and one of the big changes to the national quality standards. So the seven quality areas that that education and care services operate under will be having a bit of a revision. So as we talked about then, a reduction from 58 elements to 40, but the there will still be seven quality areas. So we thought one of the things we wanted to do over the course of this year was look at each of the quality areas one by one in a sort of little mini series within the, within the series. So we'll be uh, sort of doing that over the course of the rest of the year and we'll, we'll let people know when they're coming up. But it made sense to start with quality area one. So we will actually be uh, ducking off for a quick break in a minute, but we'll be coming back with a with an in-depth discussion on quality area one with uh, the fantastic Rhonda Livingston, the national educational leader for ASEQA. So this is, um, I don't think uh, we could have got anyone much better to talk about this one, but um, but keep an eye out in the feed. If you, if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do because we will be covering uh, quality areas two to seven sort of at random points throughout the year when we can find uh, fantastic people to discuss them uh, with us. But we, um, one of the things I think we've been really focused on this year in the podcast is is really focusing on things that we hope will support, you know, professionals and, and educators working in the sector and, and providing a bit of free sort of, you know, PD for the sector because we know that's such a such an issue with with educators and services being able to access that. So we hope these kind of discussions are useful. But um, we will be back after a short break uh, with Rhonda and Quality Area One. Stay with us. All right, we're here with our first in our seven-part series, which will be dropping throughout the rest of the year, looking at the new or slightly new, slightly revised national quality standards. So it seems only appropriate to start with Quality Area 1, which is educational program and practice. And we're very excited to introduce a very special guest talking about probably the person most qualified in Australia to be talking about this standard with us. So Leanne, did you want to introduce our special guest? Well, we're very, very pleased tonight to have Rhonda Livingston with us, who is the National Education Leader at ASEQA. Um, I think many, many people will know Rhonda. So, hi, Rhonda. How are you going? Hi, Liam. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be able to join you tonight. Well, we're, we're excited to have you on. And um, uh, what, um, what I was going to say when I was introducing you was that um, – it's uh, the, the the introduction that, that is provided on the ASEQA website talks about you being found after a nationwide search. And um, what sort of comes to mind is some of the programs that we see at the moment, like The Voice and things like that, and that there was some sort of audition process or and Eurovision. maybe you were picked out. Yeah, Eurovision, exactly. So uh, I'm sure it wasn't that. But obviously um, you did come with some amazing credentials to this role and so maybe you could give us a little bit of background about yourself to start with. I feel very privileged to have um, been appointed as the National Education Leader in ASEQA and I guess um, I'm grateful for the experiences that I've had in the early childhood education and care sector. I worked in the sector in a range of positions including director uh, predominantly in uh, long day care services and preschool services, but also I've worked as an assessor of qu- quality programs. 
both in government departments and in uh, not-for-profit organisations that focus on um, quality outcomes for children. Um, I've also worked in government um, in both the policy and the funding areas, and I was really grateful for the opportunity to be involved in the COAG reforms, so working on the, the learning frameworks and the national quality standard. Um, I was part of a small group of colleagues from jurisdictions and also our colleagues from the NCAC, the National Childcare Accreditation Council. And we were charged with the task of developing an aspirational standard for uh, early childhood services. I was also involved in the development of the guides and the uh, assessment and rating process resources. And in 2013, I joined a CEQA um, and I was part of the team that was assessing applications for the excellent rating. And then in 2014, I was absolutely delighted to be appointed as the National Education Leader. And could you maybe tell us a bit about that role at a CEQA, Rhonda? It's such an interesting and diverse role. It involves meeting um, with educators, developing and delivering workshops and presentations, writing blogs, social media posts and newsletter articles. I meet the most interesting people, um, researchers, academics, authorised officers, entrepreneurs, people from a whole range of different areas who are working um, really hard to ensure positive outcomes for children and families. So if you sort of could think about it, what's the one um, big goal that you feel like you have as the, in that role of educational leader, of education leader? I guess an important part of the role is building a shared understanding of the expectations around the national quality framework, and that includes the national quality standard and the underpinning regulatory standards, as well as the approved learning frameworks. So it's a big role, um, a very big role, uh, a lot of responsibility. Um, no, don't want to put too much pressure on you, but what, what have you found to be the, the most fabulous um, aspects of this job? And then the other side of that, the most challenging of your role? It's absolutely inspiring hearing educators' stories. And I must have engaged with more than 10,000 educators and service leaders since I started in the role a little over three years ago. And it's really rewarding to hear the great practice that's occurring in services across Australia. I, that, that's, a, I, that's a huge number. That's massive. No wonder my hair's turned white. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I am fortunate that I work with an inspiring team of people and we're great. it's great that we've got a leadership team that encourages and supports innovation and creativity. And so that's a really exciting part of the role that we can look at different ways that we can um, support educators and, you know, take that strength-based approach in terms of empowering um, educators with information. And, and I find the opportunity to share stories, educators' stories and service leaders' stories 
quite amazing. Mm, I mentioned yeah, I get to I mentioned before that I get to meet amazing and diverse people working hard to make a difference for children and families. And that includes educators, service leaders and providers, authorised officers, researchers, academics, entrepreneurs. And also we hear some absolutely amazing stories from services that have achieved the excellent rating. And it just inspires me to, um, to read stories and the generosity of spirit um, these people are really focused on improving outcomes for children and families and not just in their immediate, um, in their service or their immediate community, but thinking more broadly about how they can um, support quality outcomes for children and families. Yeah. What's the most remote place you've travelled to? I'm interested in that. Um, I think Gumbalanya up in the Northern Territory is probably the most remote and um, again inspiring to see educators working collaboratively with families and the community to ensure children have quality education and care experiences. Well I know Rhonda I was very fortunate to work with a service that was fortunate enough to have you visit and as well as some fantastic discussions obviously about quality area one that visit did end I think with you climbing the tree at the service as we took a photo and 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 climbing and, and hovering over the rest of us in a photo, which is one of my most treasured photos of my work in the early childhood education sector. So thanks for that. And sadly, clee, tr- uh, sorry, tree, tree climbing, like singing, is not one of my best attributes, but I'm always willing to give it a go. <laughs> I think you did fantastically. That would bring, um, that would actually bring reality to the myth about drop bears, wouldn't it, if you fell out of the um, tree? <laughs> I think that's Maybe. what people are talking about with the the burden of being overregulated is the is people from a sequel hiding in their trees. But I'm sure it was that's it was right. a, it was all above board. You were you were asked with, to attend all with good intention. That's and right. What about the what about the tough stuff in your role? What's the what's the hard stuff that you lie awake at night tossing and turning about? Holding a tune when I sing. <laughs> I love to sing, but I recognise that I don't have an ounce of talent. But I think it's good for the soul, but also I use it as a strategy um, to have a laugh and to reduce stress. Um, but I guess challenging is fitting in all the work that we want to do within a day because um, there are so many stories to tell and, um, you know, I'm so fortunate um, to have a job that I love and want to jump out of bed every day and um, it's the work's always interesting it's diverse it's at times challenging but it's always really rewarding oh that's fantastic yeah well i know that there was uh one question one more sort of personal question that we had uh for you which was what what are your hopes and dreams for um, early childhood education in australia it's really exciting for me to see the improvements in quality that are happening in services every day And it's also really inspiring to see the willingness of educators and service leaders to go that extra mile for children and families and also for each other to support each other in, um, you know, support each other's professional development and growth. Um, In terms of my hopes and dreams, I'd love to see um, a more embedded understanding of the importance of and, and, and a commitment to quality children's services and a recognition of the significant benefits not only to children and families but to 
society more broadly. And I think a flow-on effect from that would be, um, you know, a high level of respect and recognition for the many, many, many educators, service leaders and providers who every day use their knowledge, skills and insights and commitment to work hard to enhance quality outcomes for children and families. Good. I reckon we can get on board with that. What do you reckon, Liam? That sounds like a <laughs> wonderful vision for early childhood. Fantastic. Um, so wonderful. You know, Rhonda, one of the things I've really uh, loved about the work as Seek was done uh, since it was formed for a policy and a data nerd like me is they, they're very good at They've obviously got a fairly huge wealth of data about early childhood education um, and school age and family care, uh, daycare services. Um, did you want to tell us a bit about, you know, what's the, what the sort of data... Um, is available and what it reveals about particularly quality area one? I too get excited about data, Liam. Some people say I need to get out more, but I do (laughs) think that um, having a rich evidence base really supports uh, decision-making but also, um, you know, can strengthen um, positions or arguments for resources or... um, for improvements in practice. We're really fortunate. The National Quality Agenda Information Technology System, the NQA ITS, because we love acronyms in early childhood education and care. Um, The NQA ITS now has assessment and rating data from assessments that have occurred across Australia in more than 13,000 services. So we have a rich array of information to inform and and enhance practice. And um, the exciting thing for me is that a CEQA publishes on their website a quarterly snapshot and sitting behind that snapshot data is um, Excel spreadsheets. So researchers, academics, educators, service leaders can have a look at the data um, and the data goes down to an element element level and service level. So their data is there to um, inform practice. Services can look at it in terms of how they're going in comparison with other like services. Um, educators, academics, researchers can use the, the draw on the data to explore emerging patterns and trends. I use the data all the time because it helps me focus on where um, we need to prioritise support and information to empower the sector to meet and exceed the national quality standard and underpinning regulatory standards. Um, And I think that the data is telling some really exciting stories. Um, for example, a significant proportion of services that have had a second assessment have actually increased their overall rating. I think the last time it, I looked, it was more than 60%. And a significant proportion of the services that were not captured in that 60%, that is that they didn't uh, um, increase their overall rating, actually increased the number of elements that, that they met. So that's um, inspiring to see the changes that are happening. I'm also seeing some trends emerge. For example, quality area one continues to be the most challenging and it's elements like 1.2.3, 
That's the element related to critical reflection. And also 1.2.1, the one related to cycle of planning. They're very challenging. Um, and whilst I am cautious to make causal relationship, I have noticed in the data some um, correlation between services that do well in quality area seven and particularly 7.1.4, that's the one relating to the educational leader. I see a correlation between services that, that meet that element and those that do well in quality area one. And I, I am really excited about the inclusion of the educational leader in the national quality standard and in the revised standard, the wording I think um, acknowledges that important, the changing wording acknowledges that important role um, that the educational leader has in supporting quality improvement. So that that is that's really interesting, um, Rhonda, and it's the the point at which we're sort of getting to be able to, um, oh no, sorry, I think the data is fantastic. That's one thing I wanted to say because I, I um, it's so great that it's kind of opened up more and people are able to get in there and have a look. Now, I'm not sure whether all of, all of the sector shares our great love and enjoyment of these things, but isn't it wonderful that it's there when we all want that sort of data fix and, and to have a look at it? But it has been um great to see that transparency there and and to see the the possibilities of what you can do with that data with the you're saying that there's um you, you're reluctant to draw causal links but obviously that's what we'd hope we could do with the data anyway eventually how long do you think it will be before you can you know start to draw those links and then start to really kind of put out that um put that out in a in a very um, sort of confident way that those links are there? I guess it is difficult to draw those causal relationships when you think about the interconnected nature of the seven quality areas in the um, national quality standard. Yeah, and I guess we've, we've it's tricky. We know that a lot of services still haven't been assessed yet. So we've um, once that's been done sort of nationally, We'll have a much better idea of um, of where that is. No, I think that's it. the the data there is really interesting, Rhonda. And I'll be um, <clears throat> not to spoil my recommendations for later, but there's also been a fantastic research paper um, published by SQL on Quality Area One that I'd recommend people check out as well. Um, I guess the the as I said at the top, we're hoping to do um, an episode on each of the national quality uh, each of the seven national quality standards, looking at. Um, specifically, you know, for educators and services and educational leaders as well, uh, what they should be thinking about in terms of the changes that, that are coming up in February 2018. Um, so if we could get into talking about, so, you know, quality area one, um, you know, what, what are the big things you think uh, educators and early childhood professionals should know about uh, what these changes will mean for quality area one in particular? Thanks also for raising the issue of the um, occasional papers. We're up to occasional paper four, and I guess that the papers go into um, into more detail and a greater depth in terms of analysing some of the data in the uh, NQA ITS. So I would it really encourage you to have a look at that, those papers. Um, I'm really excited about the changes to the National Quality Standard as part of the revision. And I guess it reflects 
Australian state and territory governments, as well as the CEQA's um, commitment to um, continual equality improve. Just like we expect the sector to be thinking about continual quality improvement, we've certainly learnt a lot since the national quality framework was first implemented in 2012. And I think a really exciting um, change is the revision to the national quality standard. And having been involved in the development of the initial, um, the current national quality standard, I hold it dear to my heart. I take a little pocket-sized, handbag-sized copy of the NQS wherever I go, just <laughs> in case someone might want to have a chat about 7.2.2 or 3.1.3. It hasn't happened as yet, but I'm... Even, even if they're not early childhood people by the sound of that, is that right? Even if they're not early childhood people. Who wouldn't love the National Quality Standard? I'm but sure I you're... Do Barista loves to hear you um, to tell them all about the quality standards. Yes, CC. But I do think the revised national quality standard provides greater clarity, not only for authorised officers, but also for educators and service leaders. And it also removes some of the conceptual overlap between elements and standards. And it clarifies the language and reduces the number of standards um, from... 18 to 15 and the number of elements from 58 to 40 elements. But I'm confident that it also, it has retained um, what's important in terms of uh, quality outcomes for children and families. Which in is, terms which of the, is the, the most important, the most important aspect of it. And it, I mean, it is, it, it's interesting because it's, Five years down the track—that's something that is almost unbelievable, isn't it? That it, that the we've had a the national quality framework for five years, and it was part of the scheduled review. So, it would be unusual for something um, like this not to have not to have those um, changes at some stage. What about you? Did mention the um, the planning cycle and critical reflection? Is there any impact on those um, areas? In the current um, national quality standard, we have two standards in quality area one. One kind of focuses on the approved learning framework and the other one focuses on educators and coordinators being focused, active and reflective in designing and delivering the program. In the revised standard, we've strengthened the focus on quality area one. So there now are three standards, one focusing on program programs, one focusing on practice, and the third on assessment and planning. So that concept column that's included in the revised national quality standard adds clarity. And um, I guess that pays attention to the assessment and planning cycle recognising that documentation is only one part of the cycle. And from my experience of working in the sector and also working with educators, um, I've worked with some people who really are, turn themselves inside out to get quality outcomes for children. And I think sometimes we get so focused on documentation and the amount of documentation we, we collect that we... Um, lose sight of the fact that documenting is only one part of the assessment and, and um, planning cycle. 
And I know that um, there are some great tools out there to support educators document and collect information about children's learning, their thinking, their um, growth and development. But sometimes something as simple as a post-it note can be more meaningful um, than filling out um, boxes in a template. And I guess sometimes it's useful to reflect on, you know, why why we're collecting the information. Does it um, help to reflect on pedagogy? Does it help to map um, children's journeys? Does it help to identify children who might need some additional support? Does it help us share information with families, with um, other educators in the service, with professionals? Does it help us reflect on our practice and pedagogy and improve? I, I do think that um, that sometimes we do lose the focus. And I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day who said she went into a service and educators were um, busy on their iPads taking photos and recording observations and they weren't actually engaging with the children. And she was lamenting that so many um, teachable moments are lost when educators dash for the camera or the iPad. Well, it's it's really interesting that you say that because um, recently uh, I conducted a survey which was around um, documentation and pedagogy with a, a group. And when they responded, and there's a lot of responses to this, and they were asked who they document for, they mostly answered that they documented for families, mm. for parents. And it's very interesting to hear that. And children children were not at the bottom of, of the list there, but they certainly weren't at the top. Um, and not, not and, and neither were the regulators either. So it's interesting that documentation has is predominantly being seen as for the families. And as you say, Rhonda, if we're really looking at great outcomes for children, that's you know, that's only part of the picture, isn't it, really, giving this information to families and it doesn't have to be in this this highly sort of um, sophisticated, documented form. And having those genuine partnership relationships with families is a really important part of the National Quality Standard, mm-hmm. but it needs to be a two-way um, exchange of information and a genuine respect and collaboration um, and I'm reminded of uh, my friend and colleague, Anne Stonehouse. She was talking to some educators at a conference just recently, and she reminded us that we're not actually children's biographers <laughs> and that um, that it's not our job to collect, you know, all the happy snaps, but it is our job to um, use documentation to support our work with children and families. It is an important responsibility and I I remember um, having the conversation with her and she in response to the comment that oh but families love it Um, Anne's response was yes they'd love it if you had cooked them a meal at the end of the day too exactly (laughs) exactly and I think as well because educators I don't think see documentation as for themselves like it's the it's the written um, expression of their own thinking about children's learning and then supporting their decision-making about supporting children's learning and 
well-being. I've, I've, been, I've been in rooms where I've sort of talked about it with educators and they've been almost shocked because it's that stuff or it's for families. And I sort of go, no, it's, it's for you. It's the, it's the expression of your thinking about children's learning. And, you know, the regulations make it clear that has to be accessible to families and we have to share it and explain it to them, but not that they're the primary audience. And I think that, to me, is a, is a big fundamental um, thing we need, to, we need to keep discussing in the sector. Mm. And um, the other, um, I mentioned that 1.2.3, the one around the element relating to critical reflection is also um, one that services find challenging. And I know that reflecting on practice and pedagogy is a skill and, um, and it takes practice, but I also recognise that it's not something tangible that you can take off the shelf and share with authorised officers. So, you know, I think that, you know, whilst when we were writing the national quality, the guide to the national quality standard, we purposefully put observation as one of the the key ways that an authorised officer would collect uh, information and evidence that um, educators and service leaders were meeting the standards because if we truly are on about outcome focus, we should see it in the quality of interactions, of experiences, of relationships. But we didn't want authorised officers to make assumptions about what they were seeing, but we also recognised that there would be intangible things um, that they wouldn't necessarily see without having those rich conversations. And there are things that in the National Quality Standard, it, it is a tough gig collecting information and evidence across the 58 elements. So those discussions were um, seen as very important. But we purposefully put documentation last because we recognised that it was a really important part of the process. And we looked at the research and we also drew on our own experiences, um, recognised that it was really important and a professional responsibility but it was never meant to overtake um, the work that we do with children and families. Um, but I was thinking in terms of, you know, that um, how would you demonstrate, how would you talk to the authorised officers about how you're reflecting on practice? Um, and as you said, Liam, using documentation to reflect on practice to um, think about ways to improve um, your pedagogy is an important way to have those those conversations about the deep thinking that goes into our work with children and families every day. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the um, the guide to the national quality uh, standard there, Rhonda. So a big round of applause for me for your involvement in that because I think that's the most underutilised document in the sector. It's fantastic. And even just looking at quality area one and particularly critical reflection, which you're right, I think services do... Um, struggle with and the data bears that out for national ratings that there's actually a great list of reflective questions in the national quality standard about um, all of those elements and particularly looking at um, if you look at the standards so uh, as they are now the uh, standards uh, 1.1 and 1.2 they'll be a bit different in the new NQS uh, that starts in February but they're a great starting point for they're not critical reflection in and of themselves because they're just questions but they're really great starting points for uh, for people to engage with that critical reflection process as actually a really good starting point in, in, in the in the foundational sector documents already. Do you, do you think people have um, missed that missed the guide? Do you think that they 
do you think it's time to to reinvigorate the um, the promotion of the guide? With the changes that the ministers have agreed to in terms of the national quality standard and the underpinning regulatory standards, there's lots of work happening within a CEQA and with our colleagues in states and territories to re revise the guide to reflect the new standards, but also you know, we've identified that we've all learnt a lot along the way. So we are drawing on the knowledge and expertise of some of our um, uh, expert colleagues across the sector to um, enrich that guide. So it is a really useful tool. And I do remember when we were developing the guide, we thought it was really important to give some examples about what practice might look like. But as soon as we started to put down dot points, we were really nervous that people might see it as a checklist. And we didn't for one minute think that we could um, know or anticipate the rich practice that was happening and evolving in services. But we did have a go at um, identifying um, and giving some examples about what practice might look like. So I would really encourage people to engage with the guide, but please, 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 it's not was not meant to be a checklist. Yeah, and I think that that um, I think that that is a great point, um, Rhonda, because I think one of the the primary challenges that we we have is um, really pursuing a strong professional identity and. Sometimes lists can kind of get in the way of that, can't they? Lists of points can get in the way of that because it, it removes people from that deeper thinking and that grasp of their role and their profession. So I personally, I think that's a great choice. What do you reckon, Liam? Absolutely. And, and it's always important to remember because I think um, when I hear... Um, which I still, it amazes me, I still sort of hear bubbling in the sector sort of anti-NQF stuff and this sort of grumbling about, um, you know, the NQF sort of sitting over everything. And then at the same hand, people going, well, it's not clear enough about what I have to do. Um, I always want to remind people, you know, the standard and the framework were developed for a, such a such a broad and, and uh, you know, an, an amazing sector that includes, you know, centres in Metro Canberra where I work and, and services, you know, in, in, you know, far north Queensland in rural and remote areas. You cannot have a single checklist approach to those things. And, um, you know, services and educators have to, you know, have a level of engagement with their own, con their own community context and the children and families and educators they work with and then apply that thinking to, uh, the guide to the national quality standard, which is, you know, it's there in the title. It's the guide to the national quality standard. It's not how to do the national quality standard. Mm. Yep. And I love the fact that the national quality standard recognises the professionalism of this sector. Absolutely. And it empowers educators and service leaders to make some choices, as you said, um, that, that are meaningful for the context. And there's a recognition that, Educators know, probably know their children, families, um, other educators and community better than anybody else. And it empowers them to uh, make decisions about how they will meet the standard in a way that's relevant for that community. Because you're absolutely right, Liam, the last thing we want is for a service in Bamaga, for example, in far north Queensland to look like one in CBD Melbourne because the context is different. And that's a really important 
um, um, acknowledgement in the national quality standard that it has to be relevant for the context. And I think that for some in the sector, we have been used to being told um, what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And it is it is a bit of a cultural shift to move away from thinking, well, give me the recipe or the template that mm -hmm. I need to follow or tell me what I need to do to, to move to, you know, this is exciting. This is um, empowering us to work collaboratively to ensure our children get the best outcome. The, um, the risk with becoming very prescriptive is that you end up with lowest common denominator. And I think that the, the legislative framework um, provides a strong foundation upon which the national quality standards um, sit and build quality and quality will look different in different communities. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's, I, I just love this conversation because really it is about, um, it is about fulfilling um, ethical responsibilities as uh, professionals within early childhood. And it's about being really strong in the professional identity and, and using um, the the national quality framework and the standards rather than those things using the sector, which I, I do love. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, we've, I think we've, we've, we've had a really good uh, deep dive into quality area one. Was there, I mean, uh, we sort of, we, I wanted to make sure we covered off on the, the big things, which are the planning cycle and critical reflection. I think you've, you've taken us uh, sort of through those through the course of our discussion, Rhonda. But, you know, just as we begin to wrap up, I wonder, you know, just in broad terms, do you, is there, um, you know, advice or, or guidance you'd give to, to, to educators and professionals listening to this as they begin to think about, um, you know, updating their quality improvement plans or changing their approaches maybe to the National Quality Standard as we head into to February? Are the particular things you'd like people to be thinking about? I think with the quality improvement plan, we're always focusing on, you know, what we can do better, what we need to do in, um, in the future. But for me, just like we talked about documentation um, as a way of recording children's journeys, I think the quality improvement plan records the journey that educators and services go through. And I think that we also need to take time to stop and celebrate successes. And it it's amazing to see, um, for me, to see some of the fantastic work that's ha happening across the sector. Um, and I think that, you know, I participated in a reconciliation forum a couple of weeks ago to hear and to hear from people like um, um, Alex from Reconciliation Australia talking about the significant numbers of early childhood services that now have a reconciliation action plan in place. And um, tomorrow I'm meeting with inclusion support agencies and the, the work that they're doing to support services to be inclusion ready and have a strategic inclusion plan. And it's really exciting for me to see that um, educators and services are thinking outside the box in terms of um, that continual quality improvement um, process and engaging in meaningful, relevant and authentic ways 
that's really exciting. Um, I do, you mentioned about all the resources. I do think there are lots of resources that are freely available to educators and services to um, empower and build that shared understanding of the expectations. But I also love telling educators stories. And so we've got some of those up on the on the ASEQA website in blogs because I think educators like to hear um, inspiring stories about how other educators are, are embracing the standards and um, working hard in their services. I also know from some in the sector that they're um, some people are feeling a little change fatigued. I'm really confident that the changes that have been agreed by the education ministers are really positive and will support the sector to um, improve practice and and streamline, re reduce some of the, the duplication and the administratively burdensome parts of the process. My advice would be be brave and courageous and reach out to others. I think that, um, you know, networking with other educators and other services is a fantastic way to share ideas, thoughts, um, reflect on practice and um, share resources and learn from each other. Well, I think that's a wonderfully positive note to end on, Rhonda. So, um I was just listening to those uh, those meetings and, and, and forums you get to attend and I'm insanely jealous about the fun conversations you get to have as the <laughs> national educational leader. So we hope this uh, this meeting was, was relatively fun, but we, we really appreciate uh, your time coming and chatting with us about Quality Area 1 today and we'll absolutely link to both uh, your sort of sub-page. The, there's a national educational leader sort of page on the on the ASEQA page, but um, we'll include a link to all those resources you mentioned as well. So um, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank thanks, you. Rhonda. Thanks, thanks so much, Leanne. Thanks, Liam. It's thanks, been Rhonda. Fun. It's been great fun. Thank you. Big thanks again to Rhonda for joining us. She, um, we, Leanne, is it right that she stayed back in her office in Melbourne to have this discussion with us quite I, late at in night? Sydney, in Sydney. In Sydney she was. And we're very, very grateful to her for that because, uh, you know, it's it's a big job that she has and, and then she stays back to talk to people like us. <laughs> Which, I think we're almost incredulous about that. That would have been the highlight of her day, I'm sure. It Leanne. probably was. It yeah. probably was. <laughs> So let's move, as we always do, to our recommendations for the week. And it's just you and me providing them this week, I Leanne. Know. So we better, we better make them good. Do you want to go first? Well, no pressure. Yeah, mine is actually fantastic. And <laughs> I don't know. Well, <laughs> I think so. I did share it out to you and Lisa and said, you must read this one. Um, but it, it's, I don't know whether you remember a long, long time ago, like way back in episode three or four or something, we were talking about NAPLAN and I mentioned nappy land thinking, you know, of young <laughs> children being tested. And it seems that um, the OECD has heard our podcast and is deciding, yes, indeed, what they need is a baby PISA. <laughs> now, um, I, I will just do a quick explanation of PISA because I think it's important. It's actually not like NAPLAN. It's a program for international student assessment and 
it does all sorts of stuff like problem solving, uh, you know, it assesses problem solving, financial literacy, those sorts of things which actually need critical thinking as opposed to just a Q&A and content knowledge. However, there is a proposal for um, them to introduce what they're calling a baby PISA, which is uh, assessing um, young children who are five years old across the OECD. Now, the reason why I am raising this is because I want people to be on the watch for this. This article's great. It actually describes how people are, um, how early childhood uh, professionals are pushing back against this and really wanting to make sure that if this happens, that it's done in the right way. Um, because, uh, you know, I think they're going to be using things like um, tablets for for assessing, you know, using it like a an iPad or whatever. Mm. Um and you know what? Culturally, that's just not going to work across the world. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah. But the point is that I think what they're, what they're pushing back on is that this assessment, sure, it's fine to actually look at children, evaluate them, all of those things. But let's look at exactly how that's being done and let's give it an appropriate context. Um, so it's not, an, it's, not an, it's not saying, no, no, we can't do it, but it is saying let's do it in an appropriate way and use it now in the way that PISA is being used, which is yeah. not to, you know, not, not to specifically teach different content. It's actually about the, the pedagogy that's yeah. used. So that was a very long way of saying, <laughs> I love this article, please read it, very important, and make sure you stand up if you see anything about this. Well, in the spirit of, um, I feel like I have to do this because Lisa's not here, but there are two things, Leanne. Uh, one, <laughs> the article uh, is great, so I'm assuming it's you know it's, it's reporting pretty well on what the OECD is planning to do. I I do like the focus on um, that they're saying it's not assessing reading and writing specifically; it's looking at emerging emerging literacy and numeracy and self regulation and social emotional skills, and then critically executive function as well. So I think they are, and pretty much the other research is telling us if we look at things like Harvard Center on Developing Child and the stuff that's happening there. Um, they're saying that's the stuff that's better for long-term outcomes. So it's this shift, I think, from school readiness to looking at more long-term outcomes, which I think is is positive. But as you said, it's going to be how that's implemented and how that's how that's done. And then the second thing is just a purely judgmental thing. Nursery. So the the the, the article we're linking to is on Nursery World, which is just it's fantastic. I read it all the time. This it, it's a really great. I wish we had something similar in Australia. A really fantastic look at what the sort of early childhood sector. Um, in the UK, I just wish they'd change their name and their branding. They yeah, yeah but that's that's a cultural thing because that <sighs> because nursery is I know it, it, it holds a, a different status I know. in another country, Liam. I know, but if anyone's listening, but even just the branding, they've got bright colours everywhere, and it's a bit happy and lovely. Just folk, you've got such great content. Just update the branding a tad, people. Is well, I, I, yeah, I think you've just got to go beyond it. I think you just have to stop looking at the package and look at look at what's on there. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, and mine, look, just really quickly, because we sort of touched on it in our chat with Rhonda, uh, my uh, recommendation will be to the uh, the first of the um, occasional papers that have come out from a sequel, which takes a really fantastic deep dive into the data that's been uh, uncovered by a sequel in since since assessment and rating began in 2012 and particularly looks at um, as Rhonda said things from the NQSIT system as well uh, there's some really interesting information there about what's happening sort of nationally across the sector 
Uh, and even though it's it's about sort of 18 months, two years old now, I still sort of turn to it occasionally. And there are now three other occasional papers out on other elements as well. I think uh, physical environments and health and safety are definitely two of them. And the other one escapes me at the moment. But um, I think just, look, in, and, and probably just in general, as we sort of said, there's so much information that's freely and publicly available on the National Quality Standard and the National Law and Regulations. And I really, really, really encourage... Uh, services and educators and professionals to check that out first before relying on external stuff. It's not to say there aren't great, you know, things that have been published outside of a sequel and outside of, um, you know, the, the 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 specific work on the foundational documents of the sector. But you should definitely start with those because there's there's just so much fantastic information there. Yeah, and I think a lot of the push for that data to be sort of put out there in a, in a more public way came actually from the sector, Asequa yeah. has responded really well to that. And so I think, um, you know, to ensure that that continues as well and that's time well spent for Asequa, people should engage in that data and use it. All right, that's it for the show. You can email us at earlyedushow at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Early Edu Show. You can also check out our wonderful website, which is at earlyeducationshow.com. Uh, we can, if you liked, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and want to support the podcast, we would absolutely be very grateful for your support. There's two big ways you can do that. You can head to patreon.com forward slash early edu show, uh, where you can actually do for a, as little as $1 a month is actually financially support the show. And, uh, we're really grateful for that in particular, because it means we can grow the podcast, buy some new equipment, make it sound a bit better, and then do some fun stuff, uh, later in the year if we have the funds to do that. So we're definitely doing that, that end of year office party aren't we you are determined to push this party <laughs> agenda i am on board leanne i am on board we're going to invite everybody who listens to us it's going to be such a fun party i can't <laughs> wait um if you can't do that which we completely understand um what also really helps is a rating on review on the apple podcast store so if you have an i device um, and you're listening to it on the podcast app now you can just head to the store search for early education show hit five stars if you like us that much and leave a review that uh, the algorithms and crazy background data crunching of the behind the scenes of the store means that more people can find the show if you do that so we appreciate anyone who can do that for us uh, you can also get in touch with us all individually you can find me uh, you can find all three of us on twitter i'm at lee mcnicholas and lisa who uh, will be back next week is at lisa j bryant and i'm at leanne m gibbs three and that's it for another week. Thanks to everyone. Thanks again to Rhonda. Lovely to chat with you again, Leanne. And with you, Liam. <laughs> and we'll look forward to having Lisa back next week. We are. So, and yes, hopefully with another instalment of G8 Watch. But until then, it's bye from me. And from me. 